Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit, and we are continuing in the Gospel according to Matthew, our series Jesus the King. We're in a portion of Matthew where Jesus is giving what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is king, speaking to kingdom citizens, proclaiming uh, not only uh, what he desires for us to live, um, the unparalleled goodness of what life looks like when he is Lord, but how he designed us, how we were supposed to live, um, and consequently how we are designed to flourish. Now, um, if you feel like in the midst of what's going on right now, you are floundering as opposed to flourishing, uh, you are not alone. That has been a very frequent pastoral conversation uh, we have been having and floundering in a diversity of ways. But I think for many of you, you might feel like you are floundering relationally. Do not uh, underestimate the difficulty um, maybe with you know, the p- person you live with, your spouse, your kids, your roommates, the difficulty and challenges that come with having previously, previously spent maybe two, three hours a day with somebody to now spending about 15, 16, 17 hours. If you're experiencing a little bit of relational tension and uh, conflict, you are not alone. And so what a timely word from Jesus to talk to us about anger and conflict and reconciliation in relationships. I'm sure you don't have to deal with any of this, but maybe you know somebody who does, and you can share the link with them uh, later. So Jesus, he's going to talk to us, and he's going to deal with our anger today. And he's going to deal with our anger very robustly and holistically. So when you hear anger, don't just think a very explicit uh, external outburst, although Jesus does have something to say about that. Think also what's going on underneath the surface of your heart. Think of more subtle expressions of anger. Think of something like uh, sarcasm. I heard one counselor say this past week that sarcasm is often hostility disguised as humor. Think uh, the, the duck on a pond phenomenon where you have gotten very good at projecting an image of calmness and nothing really gets to you, but what's actually going on beneath the surface and what allows you to stay afloat relationally is this internal churn of angst and anger and hatred towards another. And so it's a timely uh, moment for Jesus to talk to us about anger, but what I want you to have a vision for on the front end is that Jesus is after something far more substantial than you just being a nice and pleasant person. Jesus is after you making kingdom impact. Jesus is after a very tangible expression of what he talked to us about a couple of weeks prior of being salt and light, particularly in the spheres of influence we've been entrusted with. I think a lot of times when we think about kingdom impact, we think of people out there, we think of strangers, we think of people we've never met with. Um, But really, we are in a unique moment where we are invited to something I think that sometimes is more difficult, that is kingdom impact with the people we share life with the most, those roommates, those uh, uh, that spouse, those kids that we are doing life with right now. And I want you to have a vision of <clears throat> that Jesus is inviting you to embody gospel kindness in this unique moment. We are in a, uh, a time of hostility and harshness, of passive aggressiveness and aggressive aggressiveness. And I think if you really get to know people well, what you find is while people get very good at pretending like they're doing okay, they're actually dying on the inside. And an exposure uh, to a genuine expression of gospel kindness, the kindness of God is like light that shines in the darkness, is like salt in the midst of cultural decay. I read this, uh, this past week from uh, one author. He talks about just the power of kindness in this moment. He says, uh, only as we walk ever deeper into this tender kindness 
can we live the Christian life as the New Testament calls us to do. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. So Jesus is going to challenge us lovingly in this way, and he is going to deal with our anger. And I'm looking forward to, alongside you, learning from Jesus. Jesus is going to make three points about our anger. One, Jesus is going to talk to us about the nuance of anger, the complexities and the nuance of anger. Jesus says this in verse 21, You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, now, Again, remember what we said last week. What Jesus is saying here, and he actually makes this statement six times in a row. We'll see this in the coming weeks. What Jesus is not saying is, hey, the Old Testament was bad, and it's dumb, and I'm here to clear it up. Instead, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is performing cultural surgery. He is very strategically and in a nuanced fashion uh, cutting away the unhealthy, improper interpretations of the Old Testament law and revealing to us the pure heart of God, and as it pertains to this week, particularly expressed in the sixth commandment of thou shalt not murder. All right, so Jesus, tell us what we're supposed to get from this. He says, but I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, before we talk about what Jesus is saying, um, this is a unique expression from Jesus unique teaching of Jesus, where we have to clear up what Jesus is not saying. There's a, lot of, there's a classic misinterpretation of this very famous declaration from Jesus. And the classic misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying here is that the, um, what he's after is the creation of kingdom citizens who are passionless and emotionless, who feel nothing when faced with the brokenness and the wickedness and the sinfulness of the world. Almost like what Jesus is trying to produce is people who feel nothing, and so you can be walking down the, the street, and somebody walks up and punches your uh, three-year-old that you're walking hand-in-hand with uh, down Larimer Street, and you're like, I have no opinion about this whatsoever. Almost like that's what Jesus is after. Now, the feel-nothing interpretation of Jesus in this moment has many issues Um, But the most explicit issue with that understanding is that Jesus himself was somebody who got angry. Jesus was a man of great passion, of great emotion, and yes, expressed very explicitly anger in a number of moments in his life. I'll just give you one example. In Mark 3, 5, Jesus is uh, confronted with the compassionless uh, 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 leadership uh, of the uh, Jewish leaders of the day, and he's seeing very tangibly, he's connecting how their lack of compassion and care is tangibly, their poor leadership is tangibly hurting the people that they are responsible for. And the text says, and Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. The point is that Jesus is not trying to produce emotionless citizens in the kingdom. And even there's deep nuance to what Jesus is saying here. We'll talk about this more in the next point. But there's a, the crucial nuance you have to understand is that emotions are not the issue. Jesus is not saying emotions are evil. Emotions are not the issue. It's unhealthy reactions to our emotions that are the issue. Emotions aren't the issue. Unhealthy reactions to our emotions are the issue. And that's 
particularly crucial for us to understand as it pertains to our anger. The reality is, is if you're never feeling angry, you're not properly existing in the context of reality, particularly reality that is marred by sin, that we don't have our eyes open to the wickedness and the brokenness of the world and the radical disparity between the way things are in the way things God designed them to be. Jesus carried with him a deep angst, a deep grief that manifested at times in anger because he was broken over the radical disparity between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be. And consequently, if we are not properly processing our anger, if that is through lamenting to God and the grief that we feel in our hearts, or if it's something as simple as even if we are in the kind of the right relationship context for this, to say to somebody, you did this and it hurt me and it made me feel angry so that we can express how we feel, that we can have a voice and that person can hear the consequences of their behaviors. If we're not doing that, what we will do is internalize our anger and our reactions to our anger will be tremendously unhealthy. We become the parent who yells at our kids uh, in a totally disproportionate fashion, not because our kids deserved it, but because we're just stressed about the way somebody treated us at work. We become somebody who's always quick to jump onto our spouse, uh, looking for the smallest indicator that we've been wronged, not because our spouse is deserving of that behavior, but because something they're doing is triggering an unhealed wound from the way that our parents treated us in our upbringing. Or a lot of us just end up hating ourselves, embodying a, uh, a toxic shame. Because we've never done the work of processing. Somebody in our past hurt us, and we were innocent. And they're responsible. And consequently, we assign blame where it should be, and we are properly angry as Jesus embodied, as opposed to being angry and hating ourselves. Jesus embodied this rhythm of showing us this deep grief that then manifested anger of the radical separation between the way things are and the way things God designed things to be. As one author put it, authentic anger is a caring feeling, telling us that something matters. Anger exposes what we value and expresses our willingness to do what is required to reach that value. It allows us to stay with our values, take sides, and even die for what we believe in. Two, the gravity of anger. So again, the goal here is not to understand that emotions are the enemy. It's our reaction, our improper reactions to our emotions that are the enemy. And notice how Jesus is giving a very robust case study here. See, here's what happens. He says, a lot of time, he says, verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. A lot of times people stop there rather than seeing the nuance here that he goes on and he is presenting a very robust and a very uh, a serious case study of an improper reaction to anger. So he goes on to say, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And notice how he doubles down on the theme of the gravity of improper reaction to anger in verse 25 and 26. <clears throat> Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be uh, put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. 
Now, if we go back to verse 22, what we see is the reaction to anger in this particular case study he's presenting is uh, uh, insulting, and then he later says, somebody who says, you fool. Now, these two words here are very crucial. We have to understand what they meant, particularly in the first century context that Jesus was speaking into. The first, that insulting there, was a, uh, an insult in Aramaic that meant something along the lines of empty-headed. The second, that you fool, it was a derogatory term that carried overtones of immorality, godlessness, and idiocy. Now, <clears throat> the challenge with this is that it's hard to carry meaning from one language to the next uh, on its own, and it's particularly hard as it pertains to uh, ways that people insult one another. Uh, for example, think about this in our own context. Like, one of the most offensive things you could do if you were driving around Denver is, like, give somebody the middle finger uh, because they cut you off in traffic or something, something like that. Now, in our context, we just sort of instinctually know culturally that is a really serious thing to do to somebody else. Hopefully nobody watching this did this the past week. Um, but you know, maybe this talk about anger is particularly for you if, uh, if, if, if you did. But if you try to explain that weird cultural expression of offense to somebody who wasn't, uh, who was from a different country, it might be totally bizarre. So wait a second, it's because of this particular finger that you hold up that is deeply insulting. The point is that we have to understand in a particular cultural context when something is really, really insulting. And the two insults that Jesus is naming here would have been unbelievably offensive. Think as offensive as can be for the context in which he is speaking. Uh, in the context, they would have had these two different connotations. A connotation, these insults would have a connotation of judgment and wrath. Judgment and wrath. Judgment, when I say that, I mean what they declare is having this godlike, all-knowing wisdom about the situation. I know this person's heart. I know this person's motive. I know this person's soul. Wrath, that because I believe I have this godlike wisdom, I can also dish out or wish for godlike consequences. I am judge, jury, executioner of your fate, and I have decried that you are uh, worthless, valueless, godless, hopeless, and I am done with you, and I will discard with you, and I'll be rooting for your pain. Now, the reason Jesus gives such a stern warning about these two insults is for two reasons. One is this posture towards another person in the midst of conflict as an expression and reaction of our anger is fundamentally idolatrous. It is a plane of God and claiming to have a knowledge, power, and role of God over the situation rather than allow God to have his proper place in the midst of this conflict. The second, and on top of this, is Jesus was somebody who regularly taught that one of the clearest indicators, one of the clearest tests or expressions of whether or not we've really grasped the grace of the gospel is the amount of willingness we possess in our hearts to extend grace to others. That forgiven people are eager to forgive. When you grasp that you have been spared from the wrath of God, you no longer root for wrath in others' lives. When you grasp that God has made peace with you, even though you were his enemy, you are longing for similar reconciliation with our earthly enemies. And when we grasp the magnitude that God could save somebody like you and somebody like me, you come to believe that God can really save anybody. So rather than this posture of these very serious 
judgmental and wrathful insults that uh, our reaction to our anger, what do we do instead? Well, the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount says rather than rooting for wrath and judgment, we have a rhythm of looking back and looking forward. That's the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount as it pertains to relational tension and conflict. We don't root for wrath and judgment, but rather we embody a rhythm of looking back and looking forward. Now, we look back by embodying remembering, mourning, and meekness. Remembering, mourning, and meekness. We remember that this person, regardless of what they've done, is still an image bearer of God and consequently are valuable and are not just discarded as something subhuman. We mourn, so we're not calling their evil good. We are mourning that an image bearer of God is uh, operating contrary to their design. And we are meek and not overestimating our own goodness. Again, remember, I'm just taking this straight from the Beatitudes. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the meek. And somebody who's meek is somebody who has a proper understanding of who they really are. A lot of times what happens in relational conflict is we exaggerate our own goodness and we exaggerate that person's wickedness. We exaggerate our own goodness and we exaggerate that person's wickedness. That is contrary to meekness. Even, let me just give you a practical expression of this, just as a side quick marriage counseling tip for those of you uh, who might need this right now, which all of us, all of us do. Is that language a lot of times we use in conflict of you always do this or you never do this and it's negative. And the way we describe ourselves. I'm always the one to do this, and I'm never the one to do this, and it's positive, is a failure to embody the value of meekness where we possess within ourselves a self-awareness of the fact that we're not perfect. We're not perfect, and like that person isn't totally at fault at all times. And so consequently, we look back and we look at our own faults and our own failures, and it gives us a posture of humility to understand how other people can fall short of the mark as well. And we understand we do also. So we look back by remembering mourning and meekness. We look forward to long for forgiveness and reconciliation. We're looking forward to forgiveness and reconciliation. Even that should be the chief motivation for why we want to have difficult conversations in the midst of conflict. A lot of times, the motivation of having a conversation is we just want to be right. We just want to win. We just want to be validated. We just want to air our grievances. We want that person to feel terrible, and we want to feel better about ourselves as a consequence. Jesus is challenged to look forward with a longing of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what we are hoping for. Again, just another aside relational uh, uh, a tip here, I think particularly as it pertains to marriage, is a lot of times in conflict, we kind of go into that conflict wanting to win. And one of the mantras of my own marriage that we say to each other a lot in the midst of conflict is if one of us wins, we both lose. If one of us wins, we both lose. And a lot of times we go into these conversations trying to fight for our side and to win. And if one of us wins, we both lose. We are after winning, we're after reconciling. And that usually means both of us giving to one another and being eager to forgive and repent and to hear from one another. That's really what Jesus is after. Third point, an action step with anger. What do we do? And look what Jesus gives as a case study in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Now, it's really interesting because this is almost a comically extreme uh, uh, scenario that Jesus is presenting. For the first century audience that he's speaking to, particularly for the Jewish audience, they can't imagine 
a moment where God is more near than being in the temple at the altar, ready to make sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, hey, you know what God cares about even more than that particular moment? Is he cares about reconciling image bearer to image bearer. So leave the animal on the altar and go and be reconciled and then come back and offer the sacrifice. It's a stunning statement from Jesus that points to how his heart is that all of life is one of worship. Worship is not restricted to a temple at an altar. All of life is an altar upon which we offer up the sweet fragrance and sacrifice of reconciliation between image bearer and image bearer to the God whose image we bear. There's so much that we said about reconciliation. It's unbelievably complex and difficult. But I just wanted to draw your attention to two brilliant lines that I think are just really crucial for us to experience reconciliation in our relationships. One, <clears throat> Jesus challenges us to, I'll call it upside down thinking. Upside down, upside down thinking. Looking in the little line he gives in verse 23. <clears throat> remember, if you remember that your brother has something against you. Um, this is so brilliant from Jesus because it totally turns upside down the instinctual posture a lot of times we have in moments of conflict. We can spend literally 100% of our mental and emotional energy focused on all the ways that we've been wronged. And it's almost like Jesus asking this very frustrating question like, Psst, hey, have you given like any attention to the way that maybe you've wronged somebody else? The healthiest people in relationships the most self-aware people are the people who are not just giving their mental and emotional energy to how have I been wronged, but actually what burdens them even more is how have I wronged other people? What is it like to live with me? What is it like to experience me? Secondly, <clears throat> after totally turning our thinking conflict upside down, he says this upside down thinking then should lead to a posture of reconciliation Seeking. He says in verse 24, first be reconciled to your brother. Again, like I already said, reconciliation is very complex. It requires two people to actually want to do this. But do not let the complexities of reconciliation distract us from the very simple truth that Jesus is calling us to long for reconciliation in fractured relationships. It's amazing how we ingrain this within kids, just the, the, the significance of the rhythms of being quick to repent, quick to apologize, to not say, I'm sorry, but, but to say, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Will you forgive me? And it's amazing to me the ways that we feel like this is so crucial for children to embody, but we can literally go years as adults without very plainly and directly understanding that we've hurt somebody else and owning that hurt and initiating repentance, and asking for forgiveness, and extending forgiveness to others. I know it seems almost silly for me to say, but never underestimate the power of, I'm sorry I hurt you, will you forgive me? And I forgive you, and I love you. Those rhythms and relationships, making that a regular dialogue in the conversations of the people you're closest to, is crucial for health. Now, um, as I said at the very beginning, I understand that probably many of you are um, in contexts where there's relational tension. Maybe even right now, you're sitting with somebody where there's been relational tension, and so you feel like this is a little bit awkward right now. Um, and what I'm not trying to put on you is the pressure expectation that you immediately today uh, fix every difficult relationship you've ever had in the totality of your life. 
But I do just want to leave you with a single question as we prepare to respond and for you to have this posture of really seeking and hearing the voice of God is where's just one relationship where you can be not just a hearer of what Jesus has said here, but a doer. And don't overcomplicate this. It might be who you're sitting with right now. It probably is, to be honest. Is it a spouse? Is it a child? Is it a roommate? Is it a friend where you can create the space to experience the very thing that Jesus is saying is so close to his heart? Um, I understand that probably for many of you that makes you feel overwhelmed or scared and vulnerable, and that's okay. That's weakness. And in moments of weakness and moments of discomfort, God flexes his faithfulness. God is strong. He really is strong. So I just want to pause. I want to pray before we sing. I want you to really uh, seek to hear the voice of God and to ask him, uh, what is just one place that you can not only hear what Jesus said here, but do it and properly react to your anger uh, in a healthy way? So let's go to the Father and let's ask him to speak to us, uh, to give us wisdom of how we should live. Father, I just pray right now that you would um, that you would speak to your beloved sons and daughters. Pray you would bring to mind um, just a person that we, we can really initiate, um, not even a difficult conversation with, but a redemptive conversation with. May you make us quick to repent with the people we're living with right now. That you put to death our self-righteousness, our defensiveness. And the grace of the gospel tangibly manifests within us, being okay with not being okay. And a quickness to own our brokenness. We don't have to be defensive because the reason you love us is not because we perform, but because Jesus performed. And consequently, we can own where we're broken. We can be quick to repent and apologize. We can be quick to forgive. And we can be expectant that there will be reconciliation in the midst of brokenness. God, we pray that we would lift up these fragrant offerings to you in this coming week, and we would be light that shines in the midst of darkness. God, let the kindness of Christ be embodied in our lives. And we ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen.